any country kid that grows up with space around them, they can just go jump on their horse or the motorbike. You know, that freedom, that loss of freedom is something that's really difficult to come to terms with. You know, I didn't know any different about living in this little Atco hut with no power and no water and snakes and mice. I didn't know any different with the kids needing speech therapy twice a week and having to teach them sign language. It was our life and that was how it was. And I believe that any other person put in that same situation as me would have done exactly the same thing. Welcome to the RM Williams Outback Great Australians podcast. I'm Terry Cowley from RM Williams Outback magazine. I hope you enjoy hearing from the inspirational men and women who fairly leap from the pages of our new Great Australians publication. One such is Western Australia's Fleur MacDonald, who truly is a novel thinker. A farmer and rural crime writer, Fleur is a tenacious advocate for rural women. And it was a great pleasure for me to catch up with her again. Big thanks to Elders Insurance for sponsoring our podcast. At Elders Insurance, the agents are local and trusted members of the community who get to know you and your situation. This podcast was recorded on the lands of the Yorta Yorta people. We pay respects to their culture and leaders, past, present and emerging. Thank you so much for joining me, Fleur. Well, thanks for having me, Terry. It's lovely to hear your voice again. And thank you for being part of the Great Australian series. You have certainly earned that. Farmer and rural crime writer, a tenacious advocate for rural women. How do you feel about that description? <laughs> oh, well, um, that's nice if that's how people see me. I um, I don't know that I see myself like that, but yeah, that's that's nice. Your journey to becoming a great Australian, taking many twists and turns, certainly accompanying you along the whole way has been a lifelong love affair with the land. Yeah, I've always, um, I've always loved the land, and for, right from when I was a little girl, I didn't, um, I didn't like being inside. I would spend a lot of time outside, up a up a willow tree, reading a book, or pretending I was up the faraway tree or something. And as much time um, as my, as I could with my grandparents, um, they had a station sort of north of where I grew up um, in Oruru and I spent a lot of time up there with Papa and um, you know he taught me to I mean I guess the basics of farming and for some reason it just was totally ingrained in me it was what my soul needed. So you were born and bred in Oruru though and mm. you certainly if your family was basically transport royalty. <laughs> uh, yeah I reckon that I think that they would giggle if they heard themselves being described at that but yeah dad was very much involved in getting the specifications for the triple road trains to make sure that, you know, we could get fuel and supplies up north. So making sure that the brakes were right and what type of engine was needed and how much room was needed to pull up fully loaded or empty. And um, it was our trucks that pulled the first triple road train up the Stuart Highway, driven by Jeff Ogilvie, who was one of Dad's long-term drivers. So, you know, that was um, that was a pretty special moment um, to get all of that sorted. And, you know, Dad was right in the thick of all of that uh, so yeah we've we've been around the transport industry for a while but you know we've also been out of it now for probably 20 years I suppose mum and dad retired so yeah but yes I think that they would giggle at that <laughs> that description but you often took that opportunity to go out on the open road with your father loved it you know I met so many people out there and there was something about 
about sitting in a truck with dad. And I still have a love affair with trucks these days too. You know, I think uh, trucks are, are really amazing pieces of machinery. But yeah, we used to sit and chat and sing. We used to, dad taught me all sorts of really old songs, you know, Mockingbird Hill and Red River Valley, a lot of, a lot of American uh, country music, I suppose. But we were also like, we love Slim Dusty and you know, those, those Australian country music too. So we spent a lot of time doing that. And, you know, dad involved me as much as what he could when we're on the road. So, you know, I always met the clients. Uh, and to the point where when he held Christmas dinners in, in Adelaide for all of our clients, mum, she didn't like the hostess side of things, whereas I did. And I, you know, I liked talking to people and everyone was very generous with their time with this chatty little girl. So I used to go down and act as a hostess with dad when I was, you know, when I was quite young, you know, 10 and 11. Hostess with the most yeah. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So you had this terrific experience out on the open road and on your grandparents' station, but you were packed off to boarding school, which would have been a bit of a culture shock. Oh, yes. That was not my favourite time of my life. Uh, I, I really didn't like it. And look, I think the school itself was great education. Met some really amazing people there as well. But old structure, this huge stone building that was cold and the hearts of the house mistresses were as cold as what that building was, I'm sure. <laughs> so we, uh, yeah, so we had some pretty, um, I was just so incredibly homesick and all that freedom that I had, you know, I could just go and jump on a bike or walk out across the road and go and visit a friend or something. I lost all of that. And that was that for any country kid that grows up with space around them, they can just go jump on their horse or the motorbike. You know, that freedom, that loss of freedom is uh, really something that's really difficult to come to terms with. So I think it was about year 11, I decided uh, at that point that I wanted to go to Marcus Oldham Farm Management College and so to do that we had to work up to that because I had to take a couple of years working from when I left school to actually going across to Marcus Oldham so I had two years out from when I left school working on farms before I went across there. How did you end up across the Nullarbor in Esperance? I had a friend who whose dad had a friend over here in Esperance at a, a place called Munglana and they were looking for somebody to give them a hand so I sent over my resume and had a bit of a chat to them on the phone and they were happy enough to uh, to take me on. So my trusty Kelpie pup, Rena, and I drove across the Nullarbor with Dad in tow just to make sure that, you know, that we got there okay and Dad flew home and I stayed and uh, I'm still here. That was oh, that was quite a lot of years ago. I'm not sure how many. You ended up marrying there and purchasing a property. Yeah, a few years after I, I arrived here, yeah, we did that. And um, so the, the place that we bought is 110 k's east of Esperance and lived out there just a little at Cohut. One thing about farms in Esperance, in the Esperance area, there's not a lot of houses on them because it's sort of it's still really new land over here that's really only three generations coming up to the fourth so you know in those times people lived lived at the ends of sheds or however they were able to put down roots they they did so this little Atco hut was in the middle of uh, nowhere without power and without a toilet for a while which we did put up in in time but yeah we were fairly strapped for cash when we first bought that place so yeah we just we but we just made the best of what we had because there wasn't anywhere else to live so that was where it was. It's one thing on your own then to have two children and to have children with special needs in this situation must have been very challenging. Yeah look I think I say this quite regularly I 
I don't know that I'm any different to any other farmer's wife or farmer that had kids with special needs. You know, we get we get on and do the things that we have to do because they're our kids and we don't know any different. So, you know, I didn't know any different about living in this little Atco hut with no power and no water and snakes and mice and, and all the rest of it. I didn't know any different with, you know, the kids needing speech therapy twice a week and, and having to teach them sign language. It was our life and that was how it was. And I believe that any other person put in that same situation as me would have done exactly the same thing. So it was challenging and I found it really hard not having any family close by, but you know, it's one foot in front of the other because these little kids didn't ask to get brought into the world and it's our responsibility to make sure they're all they're all good. But I guess if you had not been in that situation, you may not have begun writing. How did you begin writing? Yeah, that's, um, that's an interesting thought. I don't know whether I would have written or not. So yeah, I started writing because Hayden had autism and he had a real problem with his attention span. And what I was reading to him as books uh, didn't really relate to him. He didn't like them. He didn't know what I was reading. So I started writing kids books for him, just little stories about the working dogs and, you know, the pet lambs. And, you know, you can make up, if you've got a pet lamb called lamb chops, you can make up a story about lamb chops. And and he can relate to that. You know, it was was there and it was tangible and he could see it. At a Christmas, I'm not sure what year it was, but I was still living in the hut and Christmas time, one of my neighbours gave me a book called Jillaroo by Rachel Treasure, which, you know, obviously, it's a really iconic book and really kick-started, you know, Rach kick-started this rural lit genre that we've got now. I, I sat back from reading that book and thought, you know, I'm in a really great position to be able to write something like that, having always written, you know, I was always writing as a child, scribbling things here and there. So I just thought, well, I'd like to have a go. And I, when I say that, I've, I'm really aware that so many people have done creative writing courses. And when I front up and say, I just had a go, it probably sounds very disrespectful. I guess where I'm lucky is that I've just come from a really long line of storytellers. I'm able to bluff my way through a little bit, I guess. I think you're being a little bit hard on yourself there. You had uh, an offer from Alan and Unwin. That was for your first novel, Red Dust, and it went on to become the highest selling novel by a debut author in 2009. I'm guessing you wouldn't have expected that. Oh, I don't think anybody expected that. Alan and Unwin included, you know, they had never published a book like Red Dust before. I was published straight after Rachel Treasure was. The genre itself hadn't even become a genre and it was really new but there was obviously a hunger for this type of story and I don't think that hunger's waned over the 13 years that I've been involved in publishing. I don't think it's waned at all. So it was very unexpected and very, very grateful. Coming into the market to be able to create a readership when the market wasn't crowded has given me a really strong readership base which I'm incredibly grateful for because that's the only reason I've had a career the way that I have because people want to read the books. So on, in one sense, your life was taking off, your career was taking off, but there was trouble at home. Mm, yeah, look, I it was, a, it was a pretty unhappy relationship, certainly from my side of things, and I wasn't supported at all in my writing. And there was some possibility that I was actually able to get a little bit of independence through writing. And I don't think that that was liked very much. So, you know, there was a lot of pressure to not write. And I 
think he was as surprised as what I was when the writing actually took off, but it certainly wasn't celebrated. You know, there was this amazing opportunity, and not only for my for a career, but to showcase agriculture. I, you know, I felt that I could help some way explain agriculture to people that didn't know or understand or couldn't possibly, you know, experience, you know, the life that farmers lead unless they are actually on the farm themselves. So I sort of felt I had a little bit of responsibility there. And I just talked away at it and, yeah, kept writing and the books kept coming. And, and then suddenly I decided I wasn't going to hide it anymore and, and um, brought it brought my laptop out into the open. I was writing down in the spare room for a really long time, sort of not letting anybody know what I was doing. And I used to wonder how on earth he, <laughs> he thought these books turned up because suddenly there'd just be a book turn up another 12 months down the track. They were, they were interesting time. Here we are 30 years down the track and I was still writing. Get into a new Ram today. It's America's best truck brand five years running, according to US News and World Report. With unrivaled Hemi V8 power, you'll understand why Ram is dominating the competition year after year. And with Australia's best range of full-size pickup trucks, Ram eats everything else for breakfast. See your Ram dealer or visit ramtrucks.com.au and get into America's best truck brand today. Ram, enough said. So you left your marriage when your children were in their early teens and Mm. you were often searching for suitable counselling services for your kids and became frustrated at how that was more difficult than it needed to be. Tell us what you did trying to address that. I found it really intriguing when I was Google searching and, you know, slow internet speeds in country areas and a lot of these websites have got really high graphics so they take forever to load and this one particular time I got through, it took me half an hour and four websites got through to a particular service in a town further away from where I live now and it just said contact the office during business hours and I thought you know that's ridiculous you know these when people need help they need it now so and there's a very little window of you know if we're, if we're talking about domestic violence and you know people making decisions on the spot there's a very little window where people feel brave enough to make a decision and they might just need a little bit of help to make that decision if they can't get help right then and there, they might change their mind and go back into a situation that isn't good for them. So I wanted people to be able to grab hold of any type of help that they needed when they needed it. So I started researching all of the domestic violence services and counselling services there was in Esperance and we uploaded all of them onto a low graphic website so it would load quickly and we had icons there so it was very easy to choose what you wanted whether it was everyday necessities, whether it was crisis accommodation, counselling services, you know, all that type of thing. And then I took it across to Albany and I, I was putting my money into it at this point. So I, I was beginning to see that I couldn't sustain what I was trying to do myself and we needed extra funding. So a fellow called Peter Fitzpatrick and I went to Canberra and uh, lobbied the government for a grant, which we got and we were able to get 16 pilot towns up on the website, which is now, it used to be called Breaking the Silence, it's now called DB Assist. And now I think there's something like 54 towns up there with online counsellors, which is what I wanted. I knew that when we started researching towns that there were, we would find that there were towns that didn't have any counselling services in there at all. And uh, my original thought process had been to put physical counsellors there, but you know, people don't necessarily want to live in Marble Bar or Albany or Esperance. So the online counselling seemed to be the way to go with that and along with a chat room because, you know, sometimes, you know, you can sit in a toilet or a bathroom with your door 
door locked and, you know, you can type a message out on the phone or rather than, you know, make a phone call. So I thought they were all really important things to do. So DV Assist is up and going and taking, you know, hundreds of phone calls every month now, which is really great. Well, congratulations. What a legacy. Oh, well, <laughs> yeah, it's got to keep going, doesn't it? And, you know, we're very, very much based on people's generosity and, and funding. So we're always looking for our partners and people that would like to be involved with us to make sure it does keep going. Now you find yourself back on a farm. You're on an 800 hectare sheep and cropping farm 120 kilometres east of Esperance. So yes, I don't actually live there, but I spend as much time out there as what I can. I've actually just increased my land holding as well, which is really great. So I've got some land north of Perth now as well. But there is something about agriculture that you just cannot take out of me. You know, it's in my blood and it's not something that can get washed out. So I seem to be hanging around the edges and probably annoying my share farmer. <laughs> but, but um, you know, we, we get along very well and um, I love being able to go out there and just spend time and, you know, just drive around and check everything and just be who I am. So 13 years after Red Dust first hit the shelves, you've sold more than 700,000 copies across 19 titles. That is mind-boggling. And you'll release your 20th novel later this year. Yeah. Yeah, crazy, isn't it? <laughs> I don't think so. You've been quoted as saying, I think one day someone will turn up and say, this has all been a dream and you actually can't write. Sounds like classic imposter syndrome, Fleur, (laughs) and I don't know why you have it. I think I'm really aware that we're only ever as good as our last book. You know, um, and as much as probably I'm very lucky where, you know, some of the authors that sell well, we get maybe two or three books, Grace. But the fact of the matter is if our books don't sell, then, you know, you don't get another contract. So, you know, it's a very precarious career and I'm very aware and I work very hard to make sure that I'm in constant contact with readers and I've got relationship with readers and I'm accessible because to me, that's really important. Sometimes that's where I get ideas from, but, you know, they are are the people that are enabling me to live this life. So it's not about the story. Well, it's about the stories that I tell and to make sure that they're fresh and new. Every book has to be fresh and new because no one wants to feel like that they've read novel, you know, three novels ago just with different characters. So I work very hard at that, but I'm very aware of why I'm able to live this life. The readers are the only reason that you know, that I'm still here. Uh, At Outback, we can relate to that sentiment. (laughs) Mm, Yes, you would be able to. So you've got your books, you've got DV Assist, you have your farm. What's next for Fleur McDonald? Uh, Well, I'm I'm not really very sure. I've taken a step back from DV Assist now. You know, that's much bigger than what I'm capable of running. Still involved a little bit, but you know, not not too much. My son, who, as we said earlier, is autistic, he's thinking that he might move out of home. So, you know, that's a bit of a thought process, isn't it? Because, you know, that's I've been a mum for 22 years and, and to not have him there that sort of suddenly takes away, you know, everything that I've worked for, for the kids-wise. I'm not really sure. He's a pilot. He works at a farm machinery dealership, but he also has his pilot's licence and he would like to fly around Australia to create unity with other people that's got autism and to talk to people that don't have autism to help them understand what sometimes goes on inside these people's minds and 
bodies and so forth. So we guess in a way that's probably going to be my next focus is helping him create that dream to come true, to fly around Australia. Of course, I'm still going to write. I'm still going to annoy my share farmer out of the farm. I can but, see it yeah. now. There's, there's going to have to be an upcoming book with a flight theme. <laughs> <laughs> yes, there, there could be. Well, my dad was a pilot too, which is where, you know, which is where my son got his love of flying from. So, you know, he's um, been there for, ingrained in me for a long time as well. The, the, so I know a little bit about flying. But I think the future for me actually does look a little bit scary just at the moment because everything always changes. You know, there's nothing more constant in life than change. You know, I'm at that probably crossroads in my life where I have the writing and the farming. But what I'm going to do after that, I, I'm not really sure. Whatever you do, I'm sure it will be interesting and inspiring like everything else you've done, Fleur. And congratulations <laughs> well, on being a, a great Australian. We have anointed you. You can wear a badge saying that now. Um, you're one of our, one of our special people who make Australia what it is today. So I really do appreciate your time talking to me and all the very best for the future, whatever it may hold. Oh, thank you, Terry. That's really kind. I have to say that I wear that anointment with a great <laughs> deal of uncomfortableness, but it's lovely to for you guys to have thought that I was worthy of that. Thank you, Fleur. Thanks for lending your ears to the RM Williams Outback Great Australians podcast. The people we featured truly inspired us and made for a great yarn, which is why they were featured in our Great Australians publication. But you know what? Our bi-monthly RM Williams Outback magazine is chock full of people just like this, as well as so many of the amazing places that are all around our country, away from the bright lights of our cities. They're brought to life through the crafted words of our writers and the talent of our photographers and their stunning images. We'd love you to become a part of the Outback family by subscribing. Go to www.outbackmag.com.au or give us a ring on 02-9028-5428 during business hours and you'll get to deal with a real human at the end of the line who will sort out home delivery for you wherever you are. That number again, 02-9028-5428. RM Williams Outback magazine is also available in Good News Agents. Now's the time to upgrade to a new Ram truck. With unrivaled Hemi V8 power and a max brake towing capacity of up to four and a half tonnes. With quick delivery available right now, you can get behind the wheel of a new Ram faster than ever. Stocks are limited, so see your Ram dealer or visit ramtrucks.com.au today. Ram eats everything else for breakfast. Stock and delivery times vary by model and dealer.